Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. For those of you visiting with us today, let me greet you. My name is Greg, and I serve here as the lead pastor. And I was away last week, if you were here, and I missed you. I apologize. We were away in South Carolina doing some recruiting for our Bible camp. What I like to do here at Fellowship Bible Church is preach through books of the Bible. We don't start in Genesis and go to Revelation. We will pick up a book, we'll take it, we'll study it through from beginning to end, and then we'll do that all over again. And today, you've joined us when we take up Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. We're going to study just one verse today, for it is a powerful one, and it fits the theme of what Paul has been leading us through. So, let's read chapter 6, verse 4 together. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Gracious Father, would you give us grace and mercy this morning to take this message that you've given to us. I pray in particular for the fathers, as it is fathers you're addressing. May we find great encouragement in your word, Lord, may we not feel overwhelmed by loss and guilt or missed opportunities. But may we remember, as we just sang, that your mercy is more and that you, by your grace, can take up for even years of waste. I pray that we would be challenged this morning by your goodness and that each of our dads would model how you are our God and Father. We pray, Lord, that you would help each family. May they come under the care of their father. May wives be uh, such a support and an equal part in the religious education of their children and growing in grace. Lord, equip us all for the enormous tasks that lie ahead. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a story this morning I'd like to start out with. It's a little bit longer than the stories I usually tell, so please bear with me. I have a friend. His name is Ed. He's a little bit older than me. He's a rather sensitive man. He lost his dad about five years ago. I believe it was about five years ago. The way that Ed wanted to remember his dad was to do some things that his dad really enjoyed to do. And so he asked me if I would join him in remembering his dad. And he said, we're going to go to a Chicago Cubs baseball game. The next day, we're going to go play a round of 18 holes at a championship golf course. And then we're going to eat some deep dish pizza. And I was like, look, I'll honor anybody. I'm up, I'm up for those three things. And so I flew out to the Chicago area, and on one evening we watched a Cubs baseball game, and the next day we were playing around at a championship golf course, and it was a very hard golf course. And my friend Ed was not playing very well. He was having a tough day on the links, and I felt bad because we were there to remember his dad, who was quite a good golfer. Well, we got to the 18th fairway. It was... Uh, Par five, which for those of you who know golf, is a long hole. And Ed had a very challenging shot ahead of him. We were playing into a very stiff breeze, which I had always known that Chicago was the windy city, but it was a windy day, even by windy city standards. The wind was straight into our face, and Ed had about 220 yards to the pin, and there was a little pond right in front. 
So you couldn't do like I like to do and hit a ground ball and roll it up to the hole because you'd be in the lake. And we're standing next to the shot, and usually what golfers do when they get to this position, and they're not sure they can hit it far enough, they just hit two short ones. It's called laying up. And in golf circles, it's kind of known as the chicken exit, okay? If you're not sure you can do it, just hit it twice, hit it short twice. So I'm looking at Ed, and he, he hasn't played well all day, and I, I said, Ed, 220 into the wind, can you hit it that far? And he said, I'm going to have to lay up. And all I said was, Ed, it's the last hole. And he said, Dad would want me to go for it. And I said, yeah, Dad would want you to go for it. I don't know if Dad would want him to go for it, but I was for him. So Ed took out his club, and I started praying. And I, I said, God, look, I don't know how much you care about golf, but I know you care about Ed, and maybe, maybe he could hit a good one. Well, Ed took his club back, swung it, and when he made contact with the ball, it was magic. The ball exploded up into the air, cut through the wind. It landed, I kid you not, five feet from the pin and rolled back off the back of the green. It was a shot that any PGA Tour professional would have been happy with. And I looked at Ed and I went, whoa, because I couldn't think of anything better to say. <laughs> I thought Ed would... I thought Ed would just be overjoyed with the quality of the shot that he just hit. What happened next shocked me. Ed fell to the ground and started crying. And he said, I miss my dad. There were two guys behind us. Not the kind of tender-hearted fellas that you would typically associate with sharing in a moment. Well, they saw that Ed was on the ground and thought maybe something was the matter, and so they rode up in their golf cart. He says, everything okay, guys? I said, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. Just, my buddy here needs a moment. He just lost his dad, and we're kind of remembering his dad. These two guys started crying. <laughs> They're like, man, both our dads just died. And it's not a club you'd ever want to be in, but we're there with you, and you'll get through this. We finished, headed off of the course, and I was reminded that if you want to touch on a soft spot with a fella, talk about his dad. Maybe you're like me, and by God's grace, you had a great dad, and you've got a good relationship with your dad. Maybe your dad has already gone to the other side and all you've got is memories or maybe unfortunately your dad wasn't a great dad and their memories are bitter whatever the case is I promise you if I were to start talking about your dad whether you're a guy or a gal emotions would begin to stir in you wouldn't they now dads I want this for us all to be a powerful memory lesson we wield enormous influence in the hearts of our children. 
far greater than we think we do. And even though our children don't remember so many of the main points, they don't remember the details as much, the thing that they do remember is the tenor of the life that you're living. And it's the tenor of that life that will get through to your children, especially if you're living it for God. And so we come today to what Paul is encouraging us fathers to do. But let's get a little context as we move forward. Paul has been talking about spirit-filled relationships all the way back in late chapter 5. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And this Spirit-filling that should flow out of us should be seen most clearly in our relationships. It should be seen in the way that husbands love their wives, in the way that wives relate and submit to their husbands. It should be seen Later on, as servants and masters work with each other, Paul is working through these relationships one after the other. Last time we were in Ephesians, we learned about children and how they are to relate to their parents. And now Paul turns his attention specifically to dads. And I want us to know just how countercultural this was. In Greek cultures, moms were solely responsible for children until they were seven. And then it was turned over to the school system. In the Roman household, fathers were not terribly involved in the lives of their children, not by any extent that we would say even in a secular sense was good. When Paul begins to enumerate the roles that a father and also mothers are supposed to have with their children, it's... We, we might look at this and say, man, there's very little instruction given. But in that culture, this was a radical change from what the norm was. Paul is also tapping into a huge amount of Old Testament material that we'll reference a little bit as we get toward the end. But the thing I want us to notice is that Paul is addressing fathers specifically. Now, moms, I want you to know you are expected to participate fully in the parenting of the children. In fact, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, that it's moms and dads who are to teach the ways of the Lord to the children. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, children are instructed to remember the instruction of their fathers and do not forget your mother's instruction. We're told in Proverbs 31 that a mother is an instructor of her child and she is teaching the king of who to look for in a wife. All along through the Old Testament, there's an assumption that moms and dads are taking a primary role in the discipleship and spiritual education of their children. This isn't something we can subcontract, but something we have to be directly involved with. That's the assumption that Scripture gives us along. Now, also moms, God expects for you to be there in the absence of of a father, of a godly father, who's taking up this role. Perhaps the father is not a believer. Perhaps the father has gone home to glory. Either way, moms, you can take up this role as well. 2 Timothy 3.15 says that Timothy was taught the ways of Scripture by his mother and his grandmother. In Titus 2.4, the older ladies are to instruct the younger ladies how to love their husbands and children. Okay, so this is a team effort. Even though Paul is specifically addressing fathers, 
there are many other sections of Scripture to where moms, you can just jump right on this bandwagon as well. Fair enough? Okay. All right. Our sermon this morning is going to take basically three points. There is sinful provocation, gospel care, and then we're going to look to some Bible for how to apply it. Sinful provocation, gospel care, and then we're going to look to the Bible for how to make application to this. All right, point one. Paul says right here, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. I want you to notice a couple of things about this word, do not provoke to wrath. It's a present tense command. Don't be doing this. If you are doing it, stop doing it. And this is a command that goes on forward, whether your children are children or whether your children are adults. There's also an assumption in this that that is the easiest thing to break into with our children, is to begin parenting, behaving, critiquing even in such a way that draws wrath and anger and sin out of our child. The words, do not provoke to wrath. How many English words is that? Do not be provoking to anger. Six English words, two Greek words. Okay, Provoke to anger is one Greek word. And that's actually significant because of the way that it gets used. There's a, a way of behaving that elicits anger from the person who sees it. We also need to note that this word, don't provoke to anger, is not used very often in the New Testament. Not used very often at all. I think there's only one other reference in the book of Romans, chapter 9, I believe. But there are a bunch of uses in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, this was Paul's Bible. This was the Bible he likely grew up reading, was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there are many, many, many uses of this word in that translation of the Bible. And we can get a pretty good idea of what this means. So, for example, the most common idea of don't provoke to anger in the Old Testament is when Israel would provoke God to jealous anger as they resorted to idols. God said, don't make an idol. Don't worship an idol. Don't have an idol. Why? Because I'm God. I'm infinite. I'm eternal. How can a, a beast or the moon or a spirit or any such other thing represent me? To hold something up and say, that's God, is a gross misrepresentation of me. It belittles me. Yet over and over and over again, Israel would resort either to the idols of other gods or to an idol that was meant to represent our God. Whether it was one or the other, that would provoke God, and here's the word, provoke God to jealousy, to jealousy. We have a wedding coming up tomorrow. This is actually an excellent time to talk about what this word might mean, jealousy. Imagine, right before David walks down the aisle to be wedded to Hannah. I tapped him on the shoulder. I'm not going to do this, by the way. But imagine, I tapped him on the shoulder, and I said, you know, She's really not all that great. How do you think that would make David feel? Anybody? Do you think that would provoke him to anger? <laughs> he said, what are you doing? 
David, I'm not going to do that. Okay? What an idol says, God, God's not what he says he is. God's not special. God's common, just like any other thing. And when God sees people doing that, his jealousy for himself, the truth about himself, rises up in him. This word is also used in Psalm 105, 32, about the feelings that people get when others are gossiping about them. Somebody is gossiping about you, and what they're saying has gotten back to you. That leads to a particular brand of anger and resentment. It's very hard to get past, isn't it? Well, when we come further into the New Testament, Paul is going to talk to fathers this same way again. But he doesn't use this word. And if you like to write down cross-references in your Bible, I might suggest writing this one down. Colossians 3.21. And Paul says almost the same thing, but he uses a different word. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And he uses a word that's used much more frequently, and we get a better idea of what he means. When he says, don't provoke your children to anger, this is a person. This is the picture of a person who likes to stir the pot. A provocateur. A person who vexes. A person who harasses. He challenges the manliness of another. And this creates, of course, embittering feelings among each other. Think, for example, of Saul, King Saul of the Old Testament, and how he, how he insulted Jonathan's manliness for being friends with David, about his ambition for not wanting to be king. This drove Jonathan to absolute furious anger, and he left the table in a huff. Consider Isaac and how his selfish disregard for the plan of God stirred the pot and got two brothers fighting against one another. Consider Jacob, who could never take personal responsibility for his actions, was always putting it back on his sons, was always putting it on somebody else. Jacob the twister, Jacob the deceiver. And what do you have but murderous brothers selling one another into slavery? Jacob's favoritism had vexed and harassed and challenged and created a volatile environment in the home. So what we can get at is that there is a type of behavior, there's a type of challenging, there's a type of religious hypocrisy that puts what we want over God. Our children see that we're covetous, which is idolatry. And that roots in them a certain amount of bitterness. When there's a situation that faces them and we make it an issue of manliness. We make it an issue of want to. We make it an issue of personal, of personal nature. When we refuse to forgive. Those things, those things when we hurl insults, we might comfort ourselves by saying, I'm trying to get the most out of them. But it's an insult that that child feels deeply. You might get the result that you want 
But what have you done? You've provoked it by tapping into their anger. And God said that is behavior we fathers have to be particularly careful to avoid. So what's the alternative? If we're not to tap into angry reactions from our children to get the response that we want, how are we supposed to shepherd them? How are we supposed to parent them? Well, that brings us to our second point, gospel care. We're told here, don't be provoking them to wrath. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And again, I want us to notice that this is a present tense command. Be nurturing. Actually, be nurturing is the actual command. It says, raise them up. What does our translation say? I'm I'm looking here. It says, fathers, do not provoke, but bring them up. Bring them up means to nurture. It's actually a very tender-hearted word. In fact, I wrote here, we need to look backward in your Bibles to see Ephesians 5.29. Husbands, love your wives as you love yourselves. Because when it comes to yourself, you nurture yourself. You nurture yourself. When you're feeling great about life, you have a certain go-to meal that you prepare for yourself. You spoil yourself when you're feeling great. When you're feeling sad, you have a go-to meal that you like to eat that spoils yourself, don't you? When you, have a, when you need a tool, you, you find yourself obsessing, looking over the details. When you, when you encounter a problem in life, you're quick to believe your own excuses. You, I say you, I mean me, I do this. We coddle ourselves, don't we? We nurture ourselves. We give ourselves every benefit of the doubt, every break. We... We give ourselves luxuries. And it says here that we're to nurture our children that way, in a certain way. That when it comes to spiritual things, when it comes to bringing them up at all, our parenting is to be described as nurturing, as caring. This, again, is a word that's used a lot in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, not so much in the New but here we're to preserve and provide Genesis 47, 17. That's when Joseph brought his, brought his family to Egypt and he's caring for all of their needs. Part of how we nurture our children is to care for their every need. How about this? In Psalm 23, 2, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He, he leads me to green pasture. That's the word. He feeds me. This is the word nourish. The good shepherd, the Lord is our shepherd, brings us to still waters and green pasture. He cares for our needs, and he's not just caring for us in this sort of Spartan kind of way. He wants us to enjoy what he's providing, and he tends to it in detail so that the children say, yes, that is very pleasant. I love that. When it comes to nurturing, gentleness, compassion, care, attention to detail. That's how this word is described for us in the Bible. Now, it says here that we're to raise up our children in the discipline. It says right here in our translation, discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word discipline 
And also the word instruction. You go ahead and put the next two slides up. Um, these, are, these are really challenging words to translate. In fact, neither word has a great English parallel. Okay? Neither word has a great English translation that compares to our educational system. There's no great way to convey exactly what these words mean. So let me give you a few examples. This word, discipline, I say it means using every means necessary to shape the entirety of the person. Sometimes this word refers to corporal punishment, creating consequences for children when they've gone astray. Sometimes this word refers to admonition. You're encouraging them like a coach would. Come on, you can do it. Sometimes it's warning. Son, I love you, but if you go down that path, you're in big trouble. Sometimes it's just straight instruction, teaching, teaching facts. Sometimes it's even teaching a skill or a trade. The word instruction has more to do with the mind. In fact, it comes from the Greek root that means mind. And again, it's more tilted toward instruction, but it can also mean warning, it can also mean admonition. And so we know in ancient schools, we, they did not separate out morality from instruction. They didn't separate those out. So becoming a responsible Roman citizen, for example, involved what they considered to be moral. It involved courage and bravery. It involved sacrifice. It involved characteristics that they felt fit that particular gender. It was an education of the whole person, whether it be their spirit or their courage or their morals or their understanding of the classics and speech. Uh, the Roman system focused particularly on speech or arithmetic or what have you. And these words used in combination lead us to the conclusion that, fathers, we have the responsibility to use every tool in our toolbox to get a kid to move in the right direction. Now, sometimes life is hard and it requires persistence. How many of us love to hear that word from a superior? You know, you just really need to be persistent in this matter. How many of us are like, yes, that's exactly what I needed to hear today, persistence? No. You have to have somebody encourage you into that. And sometimes we have to really push our children beyond even what they think they're capable of. Sometimes we have to hold them accountable. Say, so what you did was wrong. And this is a repeated offense. And so... We're going to have to bring some consequences into your life to help you through this. Sometimes what they do is right. And you get behind that and you push that forward. Sometimes what they did was right, but it was youthful. And again, you get behind that and you push that forward and exercise wisdom and caution and the critiques and encouragements but it's using every tactic available to you to inspire that child forward into the Lord. Be nurturing with compassion and grace and care and attention to details. Bring them to 
still waters and green pastures and use every mechanism that you have available to you that while it doesn't provoke them to wrath, it's not sinful or petty or small or irritating or stirring the pot. It's pushing them in every component that they have toward the things of the Lord. Now, let me ask. Do you feel overwhelmed by that commission? You should. (laughs) That's weighty, isn't it? How in the world do I accomplish that in the lives of my children? My children know, and I would be the first to tell you, I fail at this in every way imaginable. So what are we to do? How, How do we put this into practice? Well, I think the first thing to do is we look to Scripture. And we see some great examples of how to do this in Scripture. We're going to move through these very quickly. I've got four of them. So first of all, let's look to Bible. Let's look to Bible for how. Number one, dads, we must embrace God's promises, speak those promises to our children, and encourage our children to live accordingly. The promises of God are something that we need to become particularly familiar with. And it's on us to share those promises with our children and encourage them to follow those promises. I've got two examples. Do you remember Abraham when he sacrificed Isaac? He told his servants, we are going to go over there and we are going to worship, parentheses, which means I'm going to kill my son. And then we both are going to return. We know from the New Testament that Abraham had come to the conclusion that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. And Isaac laid himself down. He was well over 18 years old. He was into his adult years. And Isaac laid himself down on that altar because his dad had told him the promise. God's son will raise you from the dead. And we're going to go back and worship with them. We're going to go back to them. You know what Isaac did? He believed it. He believed it. There was David when Solomon had risen to the throne and David stands up in front of everybody and he calls his son Solomon to remember the promises that God has made him and how that anchors him. And he encouraged his son Solomon to lead the people according to all these promises. Dad, there's a wonderful tool. I beg you to pick one up. I bet you they're less than $2 on Amazon. The Bible promise book. Grab one of those. And if all you ever do is just say, hey kids, listen to this promise. What can that mean for you? You'd be so far out in front. That would be such a blessing. That would be such a reward for you. Part of this is to focus on the promises of God, to embrace them ourselves, to embrace those promises, and to encourage our children to go forward in that. Number two, dads, we must... 
we must get the family where God wants them to be for worship. We talked about this in Sunday school. It's a very simple thing, isn't it? We talked about this in Sunday school. You might remember it. Joseph of Mary and Joseph. Did you guys, you guys, anybody under 30, 40 is probably too young to remember, but everybody over 40, you guys remember triptychs? And you would, you would go on to, um, what was the, AAA. You'd go on to AAA if you were taking a road trip, and they would send you, you would tell them where you're going, and within a few days, they would send you this huge, thick catalog that literally navigated every turn and gave you many stops. How many of you have used triptychs? Do they still do them? Probably not. Okay, it's all on your phone now. But if you were to look at the life of Joseph, Jesus' dad, his life reads like a triple-A triptych. Okay? He gets to Bethlehem. Not Apparently not because he knew that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but because the governor wanted him in Bethlehem. He's like, well, God told me to obey these people and live under them, so he got there. And then God says, hey, get out of there, go to Egypt. So what does he do? He goes to Egypt. God says, be at the temple on the eighth day for circumcision. Where's Joseph? At the temple on the eighth day for circumcision. God says, hey, get back, go. Everybody, nobody's there to hurt you anymore, go home. So what does Joseph do? He goes home. Jesus is 12 years old. Joseph is supposed to have the family in Jerusalem for worship every year, multiple times a year, and it's terribly inconvenient. But when it's there for the time of worship and Jesus is 12, where are they? Where they're supposed to be for worship. There's profundity in that, isn't there? Simply getting the family where God wants them to be for worship says so much to your kids. Even when your children are adults, I would strongly encourage you to get yourself where God wants you to be for worship and invite the kids along even if they don't want to go. And they'll say, but I want to spend time with you, Dad. And you say, well, if you want to spend time with me, I'm going to be at church, so come on, let's go. Put your money where your mouth is, hop in the car, let's go. Maybe that would provoke them to wrath. You probably shouldn't say that. See? I'm bad at this. Hey, I'm going to be at church. That's where God wants me. Come with me. What, you're demonstrate, what we demonstrate to our kids when we do this is that we're, we're men under authority. And there's something very physical about it. God wants us physically there. And so we get there. We're a person who takes orders from the Lord and acts. And that profoundly influences our children. Number three, read Psalm 103. As a father pities his children, dads must, we must be compassionate as we allow mercy to steer the relationship with our kids. It's so easy for me to jump to conclusions when my kids talk to me. It's so easy for me to assume I know exactly what happened. It's so easy for me to think I know what the child is thinking. We need so much grace to listen. So much grace to get inside the mind of the child. To remember whether the child is 8 or 18 or 38, that they're dust. Be merciful and compassionate. 
if the worst thing that is said about you is that dad was too merciful and compassionate, that would be a massive win for you. It's so easy to trip into a different mode. But we need grace to be as compassionate and merciful with our children as God was compassionate and merciful for us. And last, dads, we must, we must take the lead in Bible instruction. Deuteronomy 6, 7, children, uh, parents rather, teach your children these things. Fathers, nurture your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, dads, I want to call time out right here. I want you to really listen to my heart on this, okay? I'm talking about having a little family Bible time. Now, this is a practice that can get very legalistic and box-checky if there ever was one. Where, if a dad is doing all sorts of great things, but he's having struggle getting traction in this area, he feels like he's failing everywhere. It's not true. Or, a dad is not doing so great in other areas, but he's succeeding in this, and because he's succeeding in that, that means he's doing everything great. That's not true either. Okay? This is a part, this is a part of our parenting. This is a part of our parenting. Now, this is why Pastor Chris works so hard on things like the Adventure Club. Why I come up with those little rhymes for you. To make it easy for you to do this, to give you something to use. We're trying to give you tools to share with your family. Here's what I would encourage you. Here's what I would really encourage you, dads. Don't set as a goal the number of times you have family worship or whatever. But when you do, your goal should be to make it exciting. Exciting might not be the best word to make it compelling. If family worship time is drudgery and boring and something we have to tolerate, children might get the impression that God is boring and something that we have to politely sit through and tolerate. But if you share with your children something that's really challenged you or something that's really excited you or a hard time that the Lord has brought you through, and there's something personally compelling, even if you are terribly shy and struggle to be energetic, you can be compelling by conveying to your kids how the Lord ministered to you with this idea. This, you, your kids will remember most what you're passionate about. And by framing God in a way that's compelling, I think you'll find that these land a lot better. And so, please hear that with the spirit of grace. Please hear that with the spirit of grace. If it's not been present in your family, that's okay. As Paul would say, forget the things that are behind, look forward to the things that are ahead. Okay? Write that off, put it under the blood, and move forward. If it's something you worry that you might be needing some traction with, 
give me a call. Give Pastor Chris a call. We would love to, I would love nothing better than for a dad to say, hey, what do you think of this? I've had a few dads do that, and they're the greatest conversations. But it's however it looks in the end. It's dads who need to take the lead. Okay? Dads who need to take the lead.